Okay, good evening, everyone, those at home and those here in person. And this is our 11th annual pre-Pesach Jewish history class. Every year, we take a little bit of a break from the usual topic to spend one session on a Pesach-related theme. And this year, our topic will be the model Seder in history and tradition. Here, Teddy. You need a source. So I'll begin with a citation that is probably familiar to many of you. Uh, In November 1936, during a lull in the fighting of the Arab revolt, the Jewish agency chairman, David Ben-Gurion, who would go on to, of course, become the first prime minister of Israel, testified before the Peel Commission, uh, which we've spoken in past lectures, about the Jewish people's age-old connection to Eretz Yisrael. And in seeking to convince the British delegation to award Palestine to the Jews, Ben-Gurion bolstered his presentation by contrasting the commemorative practices and the intensity of the historical memory of the Americans and the British on the one hand and the Jews on the other. So whereas only 300 years had passed since the Mayflower landed on Plymouth Rock, the typical 20th century Anglo knew no details of the event. Not what day it happened, not who the pilgrim leader was, how many pilgrims there were, what food they ate, and so on and so forth. But by contrast, 3,300 years after the Exodus, what did the Jews do? So we'll quote, if you have your source sheet, uh, for those who printed it out at home, more than 3,300 years ago, long before the Mayflower, our people left Egypt. And every Jew in the world, wherever he is, knows what day they left. And he knows what food they ate. And we still eat that food every anniversary. And we know who our leader was. And we sit down and tell the story to our children and grandchildren in order to guarantee that it will never be forgotten. And we say our two slogans, now we may be enslaved, but next year we'll be a free people. Okay? So this is a very famous Ben-Gurion quotation from the Peel Plan. Of what relevance is it to tonight's presentation? The fact that he says that every Jew knows what the date is of Passover. Now, your average ignorant American Jew probably doesn't know it's the 15th of Nisan. They look in a secular calendar, it says first day of Passover, first night of Passover, they know the the Seder is coming. But for the educated Jew, who knows the rhyme and reason of the Jewish calendar, we know 15th, the Tesvav Nisan, is Pesach. And why? Because it is the anniversary of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the Exodus from Egypt. Right, yeah. Now, the... The Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, Chag HaMatzot, known by Jews in the post-biblical period as Passover, is observed for seven days, eight in the diaspora. There you go, Eli, eight in the diaspora. Uh, beginning on 15th of Nisan, the anniversary of the Exodus. The biblical holiday of the Paschal Lamb, however, was observed in the Temple era on the afternoon of the 14th of Nisan, culminating in the Feast of the Paschal Offering, observed at nightfall. The post-Temple era Seder does what? Two things. It marks the anniversary of Hebrew liberation, and it recalls the the lost glories of the Temple service of the Korban Pest. Now, let's get to our question for tonight. Given that the Seder is observed on a specific calendar date, because its purpose is to commemorate a particular historical event, the date of which we know with certainty... I was long troubled by the following passage in the Haggadah. So let's look in your source sheets. 
you might know which, what I'm referring to, Yachol Meirosh Chodesh. You, one might have thought to do the, the service from the first day of the month of Nisan, from Rosh Chodesh. Talmud Lomar, scripture then says, Bayomahu, on that day. Ibayomahu, if it's on that day, then maybe even while it is still daylight of the 14th of Nisan, Tamud Lomar Bavurzeh comes along the Bible and says, on account of this, on account of this, meaning that you, you do the Seder rituals and tell the Seder story at the hour when the matzah and bitter herbs are laid out on the table in front of the celebrants. So, we say this every year during the, the Seder. It probably is one of those paragraphs of the Haggadah that you gloss over and don't think too much about. But I always went bonkers. Why would anyone think that you could do a Seder on Rosh Chodesh? Like the Seder happens at a specific time for a real reason, because it's an anniversary. Why at any point in the previous two weeks would you think that it's okay to do the ceremonials? So, we say Baruch Hashem, we don't say Tafar on the whole month. Okay. Now, the redactors of the Haggadah, where did they get this from? They borrowed it from the Halachic Midrash, from the Mechilta de Rabbi Yishmuel, from Parshish Bo, Pisgah number 17. The Midrash addresses when to fulfill the biblical commandment to instruct one's children in the, the historical significance of the symbolic foods eaten on Passover. And you, shall, and you shall explain to your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I went forth from Egypt. So the Pasuk says, On account of this, So that's the key Pasuk. The Pasuk is about telling your children the meaning behind the symbolic foods. Well, when are you supposed to do it? And the answer that the Midrash is saying only on the night of the Seder. A parallel passage exists in Psikta Zutrasa, a later Midrash. Take a look in the source sheet. One might have thought that one, a father can begin to instruct his son in the laws of Passover, starting from Rosh Chodesh. Talmud Lamar, therefore, we're told, no, it has to be on the night of the Seder. By the way, these two Midrashic passages, the one in the Mechilta and the one in the Psikta Zutrasa, are two lines of thought that exist throughout rabbinic literature about what the focus is on the night of Seder. Is it the narrative of the Exodus, as told in the Bible and as embellished in the Haggadah, or is it an emphasis on the minutia, the intricacies of Hilchus Pesach? So one approach was, tell a story, give some wild, fantastic midrashim on that story. That's the sort of the Rabbi Akiva angle. And then there's the Rabban Gamliel angle, which was, emphasize Hilchas Pesach, almost exclusively. And only secondarily, tell stories about the Itzias Mitzrayim. Okay, so we're going to get to why you would have thought maybe from Rosh Chodesh. But in, Is there any tie between the Shabbos Agadot Rasha? which was supposed to have been a halachic drasha rather yeah. than a, a political okay. discourse? So the, so the Shabbos HaGadol drasha is supposed to, at least according to the Mishnah Berurah, instruct folks in the details of Hilchus Chametz, Afias Matzah, baking of matzah, 
and practical guidelines for Seder. Seder. It's not really intended to be homiletic drush about Yitzhak Mitzrayim, though there's a place for that inside the drusha somewhere, as opposed to Shabbat where the emphasis is not really on Hilchas Yom Kippur or even Hilchas Sukkot, so much as it is moralizing over tshuva for the high holiday season. The is not the night of Pesach. It's correct. And we're going to get to issues of Shabbos HaGadol very shortly. Uh, Shabbos HaGadol will play an important role in leading to the model Seder. Now, a careful reading of all three texts, meaning the Mechilta, the Psikta, and our Haggadah, makes perfectly clear that nobody ever really thought you could do the Seder on a night prior to Tesvav Nisan from Rosh Chodesh and onward. Nobody ever really thought that. Everyone knows when is the hour when the matzah and mor are on the table, the night of the Seder. But what were they concerned about? That maybe, just maybe, you can engage in intergenerational learning and dialogue, the Vahigat to Labincha, a day or two or three or four uh, or five or ten before that. That it's okay. Granted, we do. Of course we do. Now, Rabbi Tzirkiyahu ben Avram Banav the author of the Shibole Haleket, explained why one might have thought it appropriate to fulfill the pedagogical mitzvah of Haggadah anytime from Rosh Chodesh and onward. Let's take a look in the Shibole Haleket. So it says like this, Klomar, me'achash anu makdimim lidrosh, bilchot since we begin to expound upon the laws of the holiday prior to the holiday, this is an entree, like a segue, to start talking with your kid. In other words, if the rabbi gives a shear in the shul already a couple of weeks before Passover on Hilchas Chametz, and the adults are learning, well, that's an, an entry point for the father to go home and tell his kid, by the way, the rabbi taught us about this, that other thing. Let's now sit down and have father-son time discussing Passover. You might have thought that. Because the instruction to take the Paschal Lamb, which appears in Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, was given when? On Rosh Chodesh. And the very next Pasuk says, You take for yourself a lamb. So since in ancient days, in the, in the year of the Exodus, the, the laws of Passover began to be expounded upon by Moses on Rosh Chodesh. That is the earliest reasonable time to think I could do so with my own kid. Okay. But then he continues. It says, well, maybe you, you would think it's from the 10th of Nisan. Why the 10th of Nisan? Because you took the Paschal Lamb, on the 10th of the month. You designated which one was going to be your lamb for the slaughter. And then he goes on and says, well, you might have thought it's the time of the Shechita. When is the time of the Shechita? That the congregation of Israel slaughters the lamb in the afternoon of the 14th of Nisan. So all these are potential time frames for engaging with your kid in a discussion about the meaning of the holiday. Comes along the, the measures to say, you might have thought all these things, but the bottom line is they don't work. You have to go Seder night, teach your kid, speak to your kid. By the way, by the way, there is a halachic dispute already among the Tanoim about how much time has to be allotted for an analysis of Hilchus Pesach on a yearly basis. So if you look in your source sheet, 
The Tosefta says, Shoalin Vihilkos Pesach, Kodam La Pesach Shloshim Yom. You begin asking questions about Passover 30 days before the holiday. Now that means that if you have like a, a QA with the rabbi and it's like open, open question, whatever you want, no, no, no rules. And the rabbi gets a whole host of questions. Some of them are on Daf Yomi, some of them are on Pasha Seshavua, some of them are totally out of left field, and some of them are Hilchus Pesach. The Hilchus Pesach questions have priority within 30 days of the holiday. So 30 days is a long time, but why, why do you need 30 days? There's a lot to learn. Okay, but Shimon Megamliel says, Shtei Shabbosos, only two weeks are necessary. You don't have to have a full month, just two Shabbatot, meaning from Rosh Chodesh and onward. But there is a custom for all young Tovahs to start learning about 30 days okay, so there's a, there's, a, there's a discussion of that in the Shulchan Aruch and in the, in the Achronim on the Shulchan Aruch. And basically they conclude that for Shavuos, where there really isn't that much to know, because it's just a yontif and there are no specialty mitzvot, it's enough just to have a few days worth of learning. Or Sukkot, it's enough to have a week or two worth of learning. But Pesach is unique in that the laws are so intricate, it requires an extended uh, time frame. But we do it 30 days anyway. That's no. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's so yeah. so interesting? I don't know. Uh, I mean, as you, I mean, <laughs> the woman. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so let's not go to the next point. The 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 Tanakh the Tanakh does cloud the issue of when Pesach can properly be observed. How does the Tanakh cloud the issue? So look in your source sheet. The very next thing I have there are issues of Pesach Sheni. That in Bamidbar chapter 9, verses 10 and 11, we have the person who is Tameh Lanefesh, who contracted corpse impurity, O Biderech Rechoka, or was on a faraway journey, and they did not have the opportunity to perform the Paschal sacrifice in the month of Nisan. The very next Pesach tells us that they can do so in the second month, in the month of Iyar. Well, that's a pretty narrow application of the Pesach Sheni. But if you go to the Mishnah, the Mishnah has a very uh, wide interpretation, a, a, a wide application of Pesach Sheni. That Rabbi, Ali, Aki, Rabbi Akiva says, if you're further away than 15 miles from Yerushalayim, that's far enough away, you can come back a month later. From Modi'in Lachutz, from the town of Modi'in, which is roughly 15 miles away from Jerusalem, in any direction, you make a circumference, okay, uh, a radius of 15 miles, you're, you're too far away, come back a month later. However, Rabbi Eliezer says that you're allowed to come back a month later, even if you're just a, a, a step away. Afilu me'iskupas ha'azar of Lachutz, if you're beyond the threshold of the temple courtyard, you're in Jerusalem, you're on the Temple Mount, but you're You're allowed to come back a month later. That means that almost everybody could come back a month later. So here we have the Torah and the rabbinic interpretations of the Torah sort of muddying the waters as to, is there really only one time when you can make Seder? Or are there other opportunities? Now we go to the story of Chizkiyahu. So let's take a look inside the uh, Pasuk in Divra Hayamim. That Hezekiah, the king of Judah, sent forth emissaries, messengers, to all of Israel and Judah. He wrote letters to Ephraim and Menashe. To come to the house of God in Jerusalem, to make a Passover to the God of Israel. Now, what's the big, the big gedilla here? That he's the king of Judah. But he's sending letters where? 
to the North Country. Now, the North Country doesn't exist anymore. It was destroyed by the Assyrians. But there were still Amcha who were up there, and the Judaic king is interested in having a, a, a resurrecting the United Monarchy of the Davidic and Solomonic times, that every all the 12 tribes of Israel, including Ephraim and Asher, should be under his uh, you know, domain. And so he wants to have a national gathering of a religious type that will consolidate his rule. What's better than Pesach? Nothing's better than Pesach. It's the best. It's the way you affiliate with the nation of Israel. So he calls for the people to come. Then, But they decided, you know what? We're better off making Pesach in the second month of the year. Can you do that? Can you get away with that? That's crazy. How can he do such a thing? Let's now go to Pasuk Gimel. Well, it was a success. A huge crowd of people came to Jerusalem uh, to observe the holiday. The holiday of the unleavened bread. Now, by the way, this is very important. Was he trying to make a Pesach Sheni? No. It's a regular Chag HaMatzos. It's not a one-day second Paschal. It's a full week-long Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And then he's doing it in the wrong month. How does he get away with that? What but, was the concept of Ola Regal? I mean, they still had the base on Mikdash. Yeah, yeah. So they had Ola Regal. Everybody was supposed to go more than 15 miles away to go up to Yushalayim. People, people typically didn't travel all that much. Ali Ola Regal was not so common, especially not from the northern part of the country, where they had been prevented from doing so for years because of political reasons and obstacles along the road. So this is an attempt to bring back something that hadn't occurred in a long time. Yeah, so now, so then let's go to The excuse was that they couldn't purify themselves in time. Now that does does sound like Pesach Sheni, But then it's, it gives the impression that even for the second Pesach they weren't so prepared, and they ate the Paschal sacrifice below Kakatuv against the law. This is like a horaz shah. It's against the rules. That Hezekiah prayed, God should forgive you. Meaning he knows this isn't the real way to do things. It's lokakatuv. And he has to petition God, please God, do us a favor, forgive us for our sins, uh, because we realize that this is inconsistent with the Mosaic Code. Okay. But they're observing a holiday, and they didn't observe it the month before. Okay, but should it be covered to the same extent of regular Pesach? No, 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 they did. This was a regular Pesach. So now, the Gemara, the Gemara tries to explain how it is that Chizkiyahu could do such a thing. And they offer an answer of Iber Nisan Benisan, that he did, what he did wrong was to intercalate the year, but too late. When you want to add a month in Adar Shani, you have to do so by what point in time? But before the end of the day on the 29th of Adar. Because if you wait any, anything past that to the so-called 30th of Adar, which is theoretically the first of Nisan, it's already the next year. It's too late to intercalate the year. The opportunity is lost. Try to come back next year. He was Iber Nisan Benisan. He thought you could still do it on the 30th of Adar, but he made a mistake by, by one day. Now that's the Gemara talking. But is the plain reading of the text that way? No. That's the Gemara trying to sort of whitewash 
uh, a decision by Chizkiyahu, which has no basis in the halacha. So the, the plain reading of the text is that for external, meaning political reasons, he observed Pesach at a time other than the anniversary of the Exodus. Okay, so we do find in the Bible both a legal mechanism for doing Pesach at, the, at a different time and an illegal example of doing Pesach at a different time. Well, there probably was, but we weren't there, so we don't know. <laughs> now, it, in medieval Ashkenaz, a custom developed of reciting the Magid section of the Haggadah from Avadim Hainu, the Farob Mitzrayim, all the way until Lechaperal Kol which is at the end of Dayenu, on the afternoon of Shabbat Hagadol. Uh, any of you do this? No. No, I never did it in my life. Any of the 47 people listening at home do that, to recite Haggadah uh, on Shabbos Haggadol? If, you, if yes, say so in the chat. But I tend to think that nobody does. So this minug was first mentioned by Rabbi Yitzchak Turnau in 15th century Austria, He's the author of the Sefer Hamin Hagim. Let's look in the source sheet. So, Vamincha Shelo, we're talking about Shabbat as a goal. Omim Avadim Hayinu, Ar Avonotenu. So, Yehuda says yes. Eli says yes. Yes. Moish says in our Hasidic Shishtibel growing up. Okay, so there were a handful of people who do this. All right. I'm happy to hear that the Minig wasn't totally lost. So, the Sefer Hamin Hagim in Austria around the year 1400 says to do this. The Ramah cites it in the Shulchan Aruch, and then we go to the Achronim. The Mishnabrura seems to favor the practice, justifying it by noting that the redemption began on Shabbat HaGadol. How did the redemption begin on Shabbat HaGadol? Because B'nai Yisrael took their Koban Pesach, which was the deity of the Egyptians, and the Egyptians are asking questions, what are you going to do? But well, we say we're going to kill it and eat it. And so and they can't do anything. They can't fight back. That's the beginning of the nace of the, of the Geula. However, however, the Vilnagon did not like this custom. Remember, of all the Ashkenazic Achronim to uh, question prior practices, nobody was as bold as the Vilnagon to say, people do this, it's wrong. So let's look in the, in the Beragra. And the, it's a Vilnagon thing. So let's look in the Beragra. This is something that shouldn't be. So he quotes that the custom of reciting the Haggadah on Shabbos Haggadah in the afternoon goes against the very line in the Haggadah that says you can't do that. It has to be at the night of Matzah Marah. So Vilna Gon says it's a bad custom. And I agree with the Vilna Gon. I don't do it. Okay. Now. Uh, can learn all year. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, so the custom was designed to stimulate popular interest in the Exodus narrative and its agotic extensions in advance of the holiday. Opponents of the practice would counter that a premature telling of the story, in effect, the practice round, necessarily detracts from the excitement generated when the story is told at the Seder proper. And I, I happen to agree with that point of view, the, the, the gross point of view. Okay. But Pesach is not the only holiday concerning which a custom developed of performing a holiday ritual in advance of its official observance. 
that you have it with Pesach, with, with, with the Haggadah and Shabbos Haggadah. You have it with Purim. You have it with Rosh Hashanah. And you have it with Yom Kippur. All of these holidays have some observance where we do it prematurely, whether for fun or for some sophisticated halachic reason. Now, what is that? Let's go to Purim first. So in Tanaitic times, in Tanaitic times, uh, Jews who lived in the boondocks, on the farm, away from the Judaic centers, uh, away from centers of liturgical proficiency, were permitted to read the Megillah on the 11th, 12th, and 13th of Adar, despite the fact that properly the Megillah is read on the 14th of Adar. Anybody who's trying to make a siyum for Tanis Bechorim and Erev Pesach learns Megillah because it's the shortest one, or it's the easiest one, and they learn Yud Aleph, Yud Beis, Yud Gimel, Yud Dalat Tesvav, the very first Mishnah in Megillah. So people were reading Megillah, even though it's not Purim, a premature observance, that was halakhically accepted. However, in Masech de Sofrim, we do have uh, a custom that emerged for Jewish communities to read the Megillah on Motzi Shabbos. Not Shabbos at Mincha, but Motzi Shabbos, from the beginning of the Megillah until Balailahu, Perikvav, and then the next Motzi Shabbos from Balailahu to the end of the Megillah. Why? I don't know. But they did it. It's in Masech de Sofim. Let's take a look in the source sheet. So, Nagua'am, Laombra Motzi Shabbatot, Shaladar, Ad Shevru Hamishasar, Yamin Baadar, Umikri Hechi Karu. How would they do it? Shabbos Bishona, Kerm Ambiyachar, Abalailahu. Okay, so I, wrote, I once wrote an article about this, the, uh, the origins of the nighttime reading of the Megillah. It was one of my first essays that I ever wrote uh, on this very topic of the premature reading of the Megillah. But it was a thing that was done in the old days. What about Rosh Hashanah? What premature action do we take on Rosh Hashanah? We blow shofar a whole month, a ganza month, except for Erev Rosh Hashanah. Okay, and what about Slichus? So what do we do, Yom Kippur? We say vidri when Erev Yom Kippur at Mincha. Why? Because you might choke on a bone and die or something like that. There's, there's sort of different theories as to why you should, should confess on Erev Yom Kippur Mincha time, but we do it. So here we have a bunch of holidays where there's a preliminary action that really is best applied to the holiday proper, but is done beforehand as well. Could you say that eating on Erev Yom Kippur is also part of that? Because well, you're stealing yourself Yom before the fest. You're prepared. It's a prophylactic to make sure you don't uh, drop dead. Okay. All right. So getting into the mood is an important thing. It's und- uh, undoubtedly so. Right, right. On that day, you'll do this. Yes, it's true. In the Torah, it's a different kind of preparation, but there is a preparation that's being done before. So, so, so maybe yeah. that would carry more. Weight. So, for those keeping score at home, we have a good point made for, from, from the audience here that Pesach is, seems to be the only holiday in the Torah where there is required preparation before the holiday, as opposed to uh, all the other Chagim, where it's just Boba Yom, you do this or you do that. But also for Sukkot. And it's a question that appears in the Kiddush Sukkot mm. with the concept of Shechianu before Aleishev, etc. Because yes. building the Sukkah in itself has a significance. So building the Sukkah has a significance. It certainly says so in the Tanakh, in the books in the Ezra Nehemiah, to go build the Sukkah. Um, but it's it's not in the Torah, though. Okay. So, so let's not go to the Model Seder. Okay, so the Model Seder, a pre-Passover gathering, 
that mimics the actual Seder in its table settings, liturgical readings, and specialty foods has its origins in the early 20th century America. During the interwar period, the model Seder became an increasingly popular program among Talmud Torahs and synagogue Hebrew schools. By the late 1940s, it had become ubiquitous, an annual feature of American Jewish life in synagogues and schools of all denominations. And just uh, to throw in a little family history, so my family has fond memories of model Seders from the early 1930s in the New Lots Talmud Torah, the late 1950s at the Oakland Jewish Center, and the late 1980s at North Shore Hebrew Academy, and even in the 2020s at Westchester Day School. So four generations uh, of model Seders in, in my family. Staples of the institutional model Seder include what? The long white tablecloth, dozens or hundreds of hard-boiled eggs, loaves of gefilte fish, bowls of horseradish, and of course, the Nathan Goldberg yellow and red Haggadah on every seat, not the Maxwell House. Okay, so what purpose did the model Seder serve? I tried to do as much research on this as I could in the, um, the cultural books on American Jewish history that have been collecting dust on my shelf for the last 15 years. Uh, and, we, and we didn't really cover this last year. We did American Jewish history. We did a little bit of, of cultural history, but not too much. So the model Seder appears to have served four purposes. One, it provided an opportunity for children to showcase the liturgical proficiency they had developed in school, much to the delight of, of parents, grandparents, and teachers in attendance. In other words, it's, a, it's an opportunity to show off the kid learned something in Cheder, that if you spent your tuition, the kid came away with something and wasn't just uh, clowning around and knows nothing. Secondly, it afforded children from non-traditional homes an opportunity to see a Seder conducted to specification, even if not at the correct date. Now, this was a real concern. The Talmud Torahs were aware of the fact that, all, that many families that enrolled children in the Talmud Torah were not especially observant at home or at all at home. And then oftentimes the enrollment of the child was because the grandfather or, or great-grandfather wanted the kid to have something. But in the nuclear family itself, there was vain and Giddishkeit. Bupkis, nothing. And so there might not even be a Seder. There might be Talmud Torah education, but hardly anything at home. So therefore, the model Seder could be the only opportunity this kid gets to see what actually goes on in a traditional environment in Leil uh, Pesach. The third uh, reason for it um, was that Jewishly unlettered, but sincerely curious parents would now have an opportunity to witness a Seder the lessons from which they could apply in their own homes in the night of Pesach, meaning you have a family that wants to do the right thing, but the previous generation had no religious training. It doesn't really know what to do. Plenty of American Jews never learned how to run a Seder. You know, you, you, as a kid, you go to Zaidi, Bubby, and you don't really pay attention to what's going on. So when now, when now you're the, the head of the household, what to do? You throw up your hands. I don't know what to do. Well, if your kid goes to a Seder and there's a model Seder, you watch very carefully what had to dip the parsley into the, uh, into the, into the salt water, and now you've learned a few lessons, you could do it on your own, or try to do it on your own. And the fourth reason was that it fostered a sense of community in a joyful and Judaically rich environment. For many youngsters, the model Seder was the highlight of their Jewish year, or the highlight of the educational year. Uh, and this is not something to be overlooked. The idea that you want to create positive memories for a child and the classroom setting isn't exactly 
the, the most pleasant experience. Plenty of kids hated Talmud Torah, hated Hebrew school with a passion, but the specialty occasions would bring a smile to their face. The model Seder was the specialty occasion par excellence, when kids actually had a good time. Okay. Now, there are, however, several drawbacks to a model Seder. Number one, the Kiddush and the various brachot over a mitzvah, notably Asher Kiddushanu, the mitzvot of Vitzivanu, Alachilas Matzah, or Asher Kiddushanu, mitzvot Vitzivanu, Alachilas Maror, or Baruch Hashem, Ga'al Yisrael at the end of the Haggadah. All of these things, when said at an off hour, are what? Bracha Levatala. Bracha Levatala. Why should that be really a concern? Okay, so, so the answer is it's not much of a concern. We can always uh, tinker with the text to have it done without Shem Malchus, you know, Hashem, instead of uh, the, 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 the official name of God. So it's a problem, but it's a problem that can be easily skirted. For Chinuch, you could almost do anything. The other thing, the other thing is, customarily, we don't eat matzah in the month or possibly two weeks before Pesach. So there's a solution to that also, egg matzah, egg matzah. So whatever halakhic obstacles that might have existed to the condu- conducting of a model Seder, we can figure out, you know, some workaround if we really have to. Okay. These seems to be very minor problems. Minor problems, minor problems. Okay. But uh, the model Seder of the, of, the, of the school, of the synagogue school or the, of the yeshiva, the day school, was not the only type of off-hour Seder. And here we rely upon the cultural, the, the foremost, the dean of American Jewish cultural historians, Jenna Weissman Joselet, whose book, The Wonders of America, played an important role in last year's course on American Jewish history. So she notes that there are other types of off-hour seders. American Jews cherish their personal autonomy and have learned to adapt religious rituals to suit personal convenience. So if darkness occurs at too late of an hour, and this is especially so Daylight savings time, which it always is now because the government puts daylight savings in early March. So some Jews will start their Seder feast early in the evening of Erev Pesach, even though the sun is still above the horizon. Now, to be honest, I can't only blame the irreligious American Jews for this. Already in the Shulchan Aruch, it talks about how you have to be on guard for this, that people might make a a blunder. So if you look in your source sheet, let's take a look at... uh, the, the second to last batch of sources, the Orachayim Tafayin Bez Aleph, Yehyeshul Chano Aruch Mi Baod Yom. The table should be set from while it's still daytime. Kedei Lechol Miakishetach Shach. I know that you should be able to eat immediately after it gets dark. Now, the truth of the matter is, you're not going to eat immediately after it gets dark. You're going to drink the first cup of wine at that point and then have Orachats uh, and Yayay and Karpas and Yachats. Uh, and a whole hours-long magid, you're not going to eat for a while, but you want to get started immediately because the Shulchan Aruch is keenly aware it is late, and people are itching to get started, and people are hungry. And also there's the factor of we don't want the children to fall asleep. Forget just that the adults are grumbling because they're, 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 their belly is hungry. The kids will actually fall asleep. So there is a desire to start as soon as possible, but there are also halachic parameters. You can't start too soon, before Tzedak Kochavim. So American Jews, don't worry about such niceties. You know, if, the, if Yom Kippur ends at four o'clock because that's when Bruce's opens on Middle Neck Road, okay, when, when the, the Reform Synagogue gets out after their Nila, so then we could start a Seder early too. All right. 
Now, yes. Now, if if the official seder inconveniently falls out on a weeknight, some Jews will assemble for a family seder, quote unquote, on the preceding Sunday. This is not. I don't think this is as popular as it used to be. But in the post-World War II era, this was known to be quite common among the less observant or non-observant that an in, uh, inconvenient day for Pesach meant let's do it on Sunday. The, the, the uh, equivalent of that is Brismila. Brismila should be the eighth day. Eighth day is a weekday, inconvenient, next Sunday. You know, these sorts of cutting corners. But such bending of the rules is consistent with an American Jewish community that, uh, that tinkered with a lot of things. And Joslet mentions kosher-style delis, shortened shiva hours, the Sunday Sabbath, and I would add the September bar mitzvah. What's the September bar mitzvah? For kids who had a birthday in July and August, but everyone's away at camp. Oh, we'll just make the bar mitzvah in September. All right, it's a, it was a common thing when I was a kid. So there's no problem. I'm not saying it's a problem. I'm just saying that when, when, when the timing of the matter is inconvenient, American Jews know how to ignore the timing of the matter. Okay, now from the 1920s until the 1980s, some ideologically motivated American Jews attended an annual event known as the Third Seder. You ever hear the Third Seder? What was the Third Seder? Two is enough, right? What's the Third Seder? The answer is that um, this was something conducted by the Arbiter Ring, the Workmen's Circle, or the Labor Zionist Faband. So the socialists, and the Zionist socialists would gather either a few days before Pesach or during Cholamoid at a big hotel uh, ballroom with a catered affair. And it was an all-day celebration. There was food. There was liturgy, the rubric of a Seder, uh, pageantry, performing arts. And they would tweak the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim uh, to fit their understanding of the glorious future, the socialist utopia, the Zionist socialist utopia. It was a good time was had by all. They probably served treif, and it was maybe even chametz, who knows, but it was the so-called third Seder. It was an opportunity for attendees to hold on to the Yiddish culture of their upbringing. About 30, 40 years ago, it ceased to be a, a factor in American Jewish life, although some people want to bring it back. Okay. Now, while the various types of off-hour seders may have served useful and crea- uh, useful purposes and created fond memories, they all lack the critical element of proper timing. Whether they were instructional, farcical, or whimsical, they simply cannot compare with a ritual done to full specification. The Gemara teaches us that a mitzvah done in its hour is most cherished. Look on the source sheet, the last three sources on the page. See how beloved a mitzvah is in its correct hour. That there are all sorts of details for every mitzvah, for every halachic observance. But one of them is the timing of the matter. And if the timing is off, the mitzvah is not beloved. In whose eyes? In God's eyes or in our eyes? Certainly in God's eyes, but even in our eyes. That getting it done when it's supposed to be done 
makes it extra special, or at least should, if your if your attitude is a proper attitude. Okay. Yeah, but you're talking about you're preaching to the converted. Right. You're talking about somebody who's reformed. Yeah. This just really just falls on that theory. Yeah. I know. I know. Now the Gemara the Gemara speculates that religious observances dislodged from their proper time might simply be waived altogether. In other words, if it's not their correct time, what's it worth? Just get rid of it. So the example, uh, if you look at the source sheet, is the Gemara Megillah Dafhamid Bays, where Tishabov fell out, fell out on a Shabbos. And what happened? Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi said, well, since it was postponed till a Sunday, you might as well not do it at all. Just, just do away with the whole thing. It's, it wasn't done at the right time. It was pushed off. Eh, completely push it off. And lastly, uh, if the day has passed, the korban is lost. In other words, there are certain mitzvot for which there is no compensatory opportunity. The korban Pesach was an example of something that had a compensatory opportunity. But the modern day Seder, does it have one? No. You could argue in Chutz Laharz, we do it twice. If you fouled up the first night, do it better the second night, fine. But basically, there's no compensatory opportunity. So, with Rosh Chodesh Nisan far behind us, I hope that we've all begun contemplating the Exodus account, the Yetzirah Mitzrayim, the Sipur Yetzirah Mitzrayim, and we've initiated our review of the intricacies of the laws of Pesach. Uh, but as for the grand fam- family gathering around the table, which is laden with biblically and rabbinically required foodstuffs, we should wait for the Leil Shimurim, the night of safeguarding, which is the anniversary of our people's liberation from the house of bondage. And we should merit the full flowering of the redemption speedily in our days from Herabi Amenu. So that's my spiel for tonight. We cut it a little short because we've uh, got pace of preparations to do, but I want to just leave you with, the, with this message. The, the model Seder, the off-hour Seder, if it's going to happen, make the most of it. In other words, let it look as, uh, as much as possible like the real thing so that those who are in need of it, whether they're youngsters or even an adult who simply didn't have the upbringing, is able to absorb as much as possible and be able to then do a serious job, bobayom. If the model Seder or the preemptive Seder is a big late sonus, which it can be, a big mockery, a big joke, then what happens? They take that late sonus and they carry it over to the real thing. So th- that's what I, I used to see when I was uh, conducting them in the Talmud Torah that I ran briefly for a few years in New Rochelle. The, the, the concern is if, it, if it's not taken as a moment of, of real learning, then it's uh, one big bizarre. So it's best to avoid the model Seder unless it really is going to serve that useful purpose. Okay. Right. It, it, too many people, too many people. Right. It's too loud, too loud. All right, so since we have a few minutes, I'll give you one more, one more thought on Pesach for tonight. Uh, so we have, the Mishnah tells us, We begin the story with Genus, with something disparaging about our people, and we end with something favorable about our people. So if you look in the Gemara, the Gemara offers a machlokas between Rav and Shmuel about what this is. What is the genus? And maybe even what is the shvach? On the matter of the disparagement, Rav says, 
Mitzchila Ovdi Avodas Kochavim. Our ancestors worshipped idols. Shmuel says what? Avodim Hayinu. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. So the question is, why did a machlokis emerge in the first Amoraic generation? Didn't they know the meaning of the Mishnah? Hadn't it, had it not been performed for several generations since the early Tanitic times, what the sequence of the, of the storytelling should be on the night of the Seder? Why this machlokis? Now, what's the, the shvach? So they, the Gemara doesn't actually mention a machlokis. We know that one way of interpreting it is, well, we were freed. God took us out of Mitzrayim. What do we also say at, in the Haggadah? Kervanu hamakom la avodato, that God brought us closer to his worship. So one version of the story could be, Terach was an idolater, but now we worship the true God. Another version of the story could be, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and now we go free. Why this machlokis? So the scholars will tell you it was never a machlokis. Rav and Shmuel live at the same time, and they could have argued, but it's not really Shmuel. The copyists for the Shas Bavli, the Vilna version of the Shas, made a mistake. That really it's Rav, not Shmuel. And some copyists made an error. Because if you look in the, later in the, in the Sugya, Rav's name appears, and in the parallel, in the, in the Yerushalmi, there's no Shmuel. Okay, so what really happened? One version of the story is this, told by uh, Josh Kolp in the Shechter Haggadah, that for those who lived in Israel, the Gnus, the disparagement was not living in Israel. An Israeli will say, what's a big embarrassment? That the Jews still live in Chutzlaretz. Shanda, they don't live in your national homeland. So what's the embarrassment? That Terach was from, from, from Haran, from Avranar, that Avram came from there, and that Yaakov left Eretz Canaan and went to Mitzrayim. So we're Navanad Ba'aretz, we're, we're, we're traveling around the world, but we're not sticking to our homeland. And what's the, uh, the favorable ending? That we get to Eretz Yisrael. Where is this story told? Sefer Yoshua, book of Joshua, chapter 24. And what's the Mitchila? The Mitchila is, in the earliest phases of our national history, from the days of Joshua, they told a recapitulation of our history, beginning with Terach, uh, the idolater, and the wanderers, and getting back to Eretz Yisrael. But if you're a, if you're a diaspora Jew, do you really want to hear that it's a, it's a big embarrassment that you live in Chutzlaretz? No, it doesn't go over well. So the alternative version of the story is, what was embarrassing? Our ancestors were slaves. What's good? We're not slaves anymore. So Rav, who learned the yeshiva in Israel, okay, he was a Babylonian Jew who made, not Aliyah, but he learned in, in Rebbe's yeshiva for a few years and adopted an Israeli persona and then went back to Babel. He has the Israeli point of view of the disparagement is not being in Israel. And Rav, who's the Babylonian Jew par excellence, has the Avodim Ainu, which is about slavery and freedom, because he doesn't want to talk about issues of Zionism. That's one version of the story. Another version of the story says, right, so it's, it's kind of peculiar that Terach should be mentioned in the Haggadah. It doesn't, you, he should not get any billing, but, but yet somehow he does. So that's Culp's version of, of how this Machlokas came about. Another version of it is, well, one story is Gufani, and one story is Ruchani. That uh, what is the focus of our attention on the night of Seder? Is it 
the physical well-being of our people, that we were enslaved versus we are free? Or is it that we had false theology or bad theology and escaped that and elevated ourselves spiritually to a correct theology? What story do you want to focus on on the night of Pesach? The truth of the matter is, I would have said, focus on the Gufani, the, 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 the physical, because this is the anniversary of the, of the liberation from the house of bondage, not the anniversary of giving of Torah. So I don't really like that answer. The third answer is, long story, short story. The Terach version, which was Rav's original version, requires us to tell a story that begins a long, long time ago and extends through many generations. Terach, Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, okay? The Shvatim, the grandchildren of Yaakov, the great-grandchildren of Yaakov in the generation of Moshe. And then all the way through, through the Esher Makas, through Yitzhak Mitzrayim, through Kriyas Yamsif, all the way to Eretz Yisrael. That's a lot to tell. It could be midnight, and you're only on Yitzchak, on Yaakov, and every, everybody else is asleep. So it's more convenient and maybe more prudent to tell the Avadim Hainu and the Otanu Misham rather than the long-winded version of the, of the Mitzchila. But a fourth explanation is like this, that the plain meaning of the Mishnah was, Maskil Begnusa Misayim Bishfach is Aram Yoved Avi. My father was a wandering Aramean. The disparagement is, my father was a wandering Aramean. The good stuff is, four verses later, we got to Israel. Yeah, we were freed from Egypt, we got to Israel. So in the early Amoraic period, everybody was following the, was going with the program of the Tanaitic version. But what happens? Maybe this doesn't work well. Maybe this was a selection from the Bible, come up with somebody 100 or two year, 100 years earlier, because they thought it would work well as a, a basis for the Magid. But what do you see in your own generation in the year 300 or 400 or 500? It's not working all that well. I need a different text. Instead of Deuteronomy 26, I need Deuteronomy 6, which is what text? That's uh, uh, and um, uh, so maybe Rava just decided, you know what, I'm going to take a different section of Torah and use that as the basis from which to expand a broader, a broader Magid. What do we in fact do? Both. We do both. In a machlokus between Rava and his contemporaries, how do we normally paskin? Like Rava, because he's Basra, he's the last one. So we should have passed in Davodim Hainu and forgotten about Mitzchila. But old habits die hard. Once it goes in the book, it doesn't come out of the book. And so we do a double Magid. We do the Arami of Eravi, but we also do Mitzchila and we do Avodim Hainu, the two versions of Master Bagnus. So what, do I, uh, what, what, what does any of this matter on the night of the Seder? It matters in that, you know, you have two opportunities here. You can tell a story about the Jewish religion, or you can tell a story about the Jewish people. You can tell a long story, you can tell a short story. You can tell a story about Zionism, or you can tell a story about Diaspora Judaism. And depending upon which Amora you were, you told a different story. So we read the text, but you got to figure out your own story. Come up with an American version of the Haggadah that is consistent with the tradition, that doesn't delete anything, but still is uh, relevant and meaningful and productive for the people around your table.
Uh, I'm confident that you can. We have Eretz Yisrael now. That does change things. Yeah. Okay, Chag Kosher V'Sameach to everybody. Aziz and Pesach. No class next week for Cholamoid. I'll see you in two weeks with the stab in the back theory after World War One. Okay, folks.